This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to the party room for 2022. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Breakfast Now, coming to you from Parliament House in Canberra on the lands of the Ngunnawal people. And I'm Frank Kelly, who used to be the host of RN Breakfast, joining you from Gadigal Land, the people of the Aura Nation, and also from COVID isolation, I'm sad to say. I have to say, PK, before we get into things and Happy New Year and all of that, happy kind of when you got sort COVID. This idea that COVID is just like a mild cold, can I get rid of that straight away? It might be for some, but for us, it certainly was not. We were triple vaxxed and really, really crook. So my message to everyone is you really, if you can help it, and I know everyone's doing their best to not get it, but don't fall into this thing, oh, I'll just get it, it'll just be a mild cold. It's really, really, really rotten. Anyway, I just need to get that off my chest. Oh, Fran, oh, yeah, I'm glad you've um, you've told people about your COVID illness. I have been worried about you, but you are pushing through, um, and like so many of our listeners right now listening to the podcast, yeah, exactly. they've, they've got through really difficult periods. Yeah, yeah, on my way back, and shout out to everyone else who's been through it over summer. What a summer it's been. And we'll get to that. Um, soon we're going to be joined this morning by Catherine Murphy from Guardian Australia's political editor for a a bumper start to, I think, a bumper year, PK. Our politicians really earning their dough last night, though, sitting all night. We're recording this on Thursday morning. They sat all Wednesday night debating the contentious religious discrimination bill. It doesn't happen much these days, PK, all nighters. When When I first started in Parliament House as a young reporter, it used to happen quite a lot, but things were sort of more unruly then. The hours were much less family friendly for MPs. Um, But if you are going to stay up all night, then a bill that not only offers protection from religious discrimination, but also enshrines the right to discriminate is the one to do it for, I reckon. And just to sort of be clear, as it stands now on this Thursday morning when we record, this bill hasn't passed yet, but Labor in the early hours of the morning, and you're going to tell us more about that, did wave it through the lower house with some amendment, thanks to five rogue coalition MPs crossing the floor to join the crossbench and Labor. I use that term, I think we're going to hear it a bit, rogue MPs. I use the term rogue loosely though, PK, because these five coalition MPs, correct me if I'm wrong, included one child psychologist, one senior paediatrician, one gay MP. If they and others of conscience aren't going to stand up to prevent discrimination against trans kids, then really, who is going to? Because they are at the coalface of these kind of issues. And that was the amendment the government has been forced to accept overnight so far, PK, this um, notion that, that trans kids can't be expelled from school. Um, there are more changes in the wash. Labor wasn't going to force things any further, though, and we dis- we'll discuss that more with Catherine. But you were there in Parliament House, really just after the reps rose, in the early hours this morning. What was the atmosphere like? 
at 5am. Fran, it was just um, such an emotional time for all the MPs. So I was receiving text messages from MPs all night, to be honest. Um, So I didn't really have a great sleep myself and you've done the breakfast hours. It wasn't a great night's sleep and I was live streaming live speeches when getting alerts that people were about to deliver speeches. It was really that that intense. But I did come in early, of course, to to present the show. Um, Just as the vote was was ending and MPs were just exhausted and emotional. I saw MPs with tears in their eyes, not just from the exhaustion, although it was that they literally had just pulled an all-nighter. And unless you're 21 going to a dance party, it's actually really hard to do all-nighters <laughs> as you age. But, but because... So they were emotional because... They were tired, but they were emotional because of the debate itself. It's been really, really hard for some people. And I spoke to Trent Zimmerman, who was one of the rebel, as you call them, or the, the rogue MPs, as soon as the vote was over. Um, he, you know, he agreed to come on RM Breakfast. He was really emotional. Um, he said it was the hardest thing he had done in his parliamentary career because he felt so strongly about the issue, but also, obviously, he was... To cross the floor is a big deal, right? And so he ended up having uh, some allies, another four, but also Labor MPs were really emotional, like Stephen Jones, for instance, the Labor MP who talked about his his nephew um, who took his own life and his own gay son who who has, has spoken as well now publicly. Uh, they're really all very emotional. This is a raw issue for anyone ha- who has a lived experience being queer or trans. Um, just like the same-sex marriage debate, it is um, overwhelming for people. Um, I mean, you know, I'm a member of that community. I have been overwhelmed by messages from people saying that this is a really hard time and, and very re-triggering for people. And I reckon that was reflected among the MPs. They were really emotional. The ones that crossed the floor did it because they, they say to me um, they thought it was the right thing to do and they feel very good that they stood up on this principle. Mm. And we'll discuss this more with, with um, Catherine a bit later, but, you know, the implications of it and where it might head now because it's got to head to the Senate and then back to the reps and an election is, you know, there's, there's not many sitting days left. But as you say, PK, we are both members of this LGBT community. This is a raw debate for many of us and that notion, I think, I mean, we saw s- such powerful contributions to these debates from um, Stephen Jones, as you mentioned, Labor MP, but also from um, Bridget Archer, Liberal MP, one of those who, the first actually to put up a hand and said she would cross the floor. It just seemed how could we in in any conscience devise a bill or or devise a change to the parliament that was going to fix discrimination locked into our current law for one group of kids, um, gay kids, and leave it entrenched for another group. I mean, it just seems unconscionable. So, you know, I'm relieved this has been addressed. But, you know, this is uh, this is just another in a long list of challenges, hurdles, embarrassments, I suppose. This is an embarrassment for the government. I think, you know, Ali Carabine, um, a friend of the podcast, has um, been doing some research on this and she's found out that I think there's only been um, three occasions since, since 1950 where five government MPs have crossed the floor. So this is a big deal um, politically. But these, there's been a lot of this for the Morrison government. They've had a very rocky start to the year, haven't they? Oh, it's been such a difficult summer for them. And of course, this is our first episode of 2022. And many of our listeners who've been, can I say, campaigning for us to come back earlier. Here we are now, guys, we're here, um, have been saying so much has happened. And they're right. It's been a summer that just didn't meet the expectations set out by the Prime Minister. And in Parliament's first sitting week of the year, things just got messier for the government, not only over the religious discrimination bill, but also the way that issues around women and the treatment of women that have dogged Scotland 
Morrison and his government re-emerged. Um, so we record this, as we say, on a, a Thursday morning. On Tuesday, Parliament opened with a statement of acknowledgement to the victims of bullying, sexual harassment and sexual assault that has occurred throughout this building and in institutions linked to this building. It was a momentous occasion, but it was almost overshadowed by the revelation that some key women initially hadn't even been invited, including Brittany Higgins, uh, the former Liberal staffer whose allegation of rape uh, was the catalyst for the Jenkins review into the culture of Parliament House. Now, she and the others who who hadn't been invited did end up receiving a last-minute invite. But, Fran, it wasn't a great look for the government. They say it was about COVID rules. We know it was also about protests on the streets at the moment in Canberra, and they've been intense too, which are about vaccination mandates and, and, and COVID. So there was generally parliament is not open at the moment for Anne. it's a different kind of vibe in this place it's not open to the public but in the last minute there was an attempt to bring in those women but it just um it just shows really sort of sometimes the clumsy handling of these issues oh again and again and again i mean this is just an own goal if you're trying to establish your bona fides on a major day like this when you're trying to make this major symbolic um statement why would you not invite those who've led us to this point the women who've spoken out out, mostly many of them to their detriment, you know, to unmask this problem. I have to say, PK, I don't know about you, I had some mixed feelings as I listened to the acknowledgement to the victims of the bullying, harassment and sexual assault in Parliament House. Not because I didn't think it should be done, and, and in a way the government and the, the political parties had to do it. It was the first recommendation of the Jenkins Review into the culture of Parliament House. So, you know, as far as it went, it did certainly did do what the Sex Discrimination Commissioner called on our political leaders to do. But I was a little disappointed that that's all it did, PK. It, it, and in that sense, it is possible, I think, to see it as a box-ticking box exercise, even though I think there was more commitment behind it than that. I mean, an apology from the federal parliament is a really big deal. When we first did it for the Stolen Generation, it was massive. We've done it for survivors of child sexual abuse, institutional sexual abuse. We've done it on a few other occasions. But to use a symbol like this of acknowledgement of hurt and wrong um, to the employees of Parliament House, it just felt a bit limited to me. You know, what about all those women who marched on Parliament House and marched around Australia in the March for Justice protest last year? What about all the other women who were sexually harassed and abused and raped in workplaces and nightclubs and parks across the country? This was a chance to acknowledge that the wrongs playing out in our Parliament House are a reflection of a larger problem that we have in our society. And I just looked up at that group of women sitting there. Chanel Contis was one of them. Um, she was the one who, you know, launched that survey, online survey, uh, calling on young women to account their school year sexual abuse and harassment. It's really, that survey, in my mind, really lifted the veil on the size of the problem that exists today in our workplaces and in our schools. And I just was sitting there wishing the Prime Minister would use his authority not just as the leader in the parliament building, but also the country to broaden out the impact of this statement. You know, this week we had Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins at the press club calling for more preventative action, not just reactive policies when it comes to these issues. And I was really struck by some math that Grace Tame did at the press club. She told us that the federal government spent, I think it was $2.8 million on its Respect Matters campaign in our schools. And she worked out that came down to about 11 cents per student per year and questioned whether that was a meaningful investment. Well, 
obviously it's not. And I just thought, wouldn't it have been great if the PM had done the acknowledgement that he did and then broadened it out and then announced something real, a major, you know, federal government effort around consent in schools or something like that. I really thought it was an opportunity lost, I have to say. Yeah, Fran. Well, I suppose, um, you know, there's another way of saying it too. I, I, and I see what you ma- you're saying there, but equally, in some ways, it exceeded what's, what were perhaps some low expectations. There was an apology in that statement um, and an apology to Brittany Higgins. To, I, I didn't expect that from, from the Prime Minister. Um, we only learned about that as it was being delivered or, you know, in stories that were breaking just as he was delivering it. So that was a surprise. It was, I think, um, a genuine apology. Brittany Higgins welcomed it. But does does it actually shift the dial? It does actualise the first recommendation of the Jenkins review. But I don't know. There's so much more work to do. So let's bring in our guest and try and sort it out with her, maybe. <laughs> Catherine Murphy from The Guardian Australia, welcome back to The Party Room. It is so lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, the acknowledgement of victims of bullying and assault was the first recommendation of the Jenkins report that's been implemented. Fran and I were just talking about it. But Grace Tame has called out the Coalition's response to social issues at the National Press Club. Here she is. The federal government's approach to social issues seems to consist of nothing but empty announcements, placatory platitudes superficial last-minute acknowledgements and carefully staged photo ops. Facades and false hope. Reviews, reports, delays and distractions, if not downright denials. So a really uh, strong speech from Grace Tame, which has ruffled some feathers. Catherine, how much has the response to these issues been performative by the government and the Prime Minister? Well, that's, it's it's an interesting question, isn't it? Of course, uh, of course, a degree a degree of the response has been performative. Well, I think we'd all agree about that. Uh, the prime minister made an absolute mess of this issue for much of the last twelve months. Like an absolute, it, it, I still I still struggle to comprehend how bad the prime minister's response was over the last twelve months. Uh, he now understands, I think, that he's got to uh, be better and look better. Because yeah, so, there has been a shift, right? Even his yeah. apology showed that shift. Oh, yeah. Look, I think uh, substantively the statement of acknowledgement in the parliament went further than I thought it would in terms of the words. Uh, you know, there, there was some very direct language in that in that statement from the Prime Minister and others. And I think, look, some things, at least in the parliamentary sphere, there have been substantive changes since uh, Brittany Higgins came forward. Uh, We can argue whether they're substantive enough. I think that's a completely reasonable argument. But things have changed. The culture is already different. There's already an atmosphere of consequences in this building that, that never used to exist. So it's not all performative, but, uh, but Grace Tame's excoriation, of course, uh, has, has the kernel of truth that makes it powerful. Sorry, Sorry, Catherine, just, no, no. just on that notion of an atmosphere of consequences, I'm interested in that, that you can you see that and can feel that and think mm-hmm. it's permanent because um, I did wonder whether listening to Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame 
whether they're so convinced of that yet, but perhaps that's just a timing thing. I mean, they were certainly, Brittany Higgins, as, as PK has mentioned earlier when we are discussing this, certainly welcomed the apology, I think as genuine from the Prime Minister directed to her. But she also pointed out she doesn't, since then, she doesn't really expect there'll be any kind of a resolution to the Gaetchen's inquiry, for instance. Mm. So there's mm. still a lot of business not concluded that would put some sort of action behind the performance, wouldn't it? Oh, no, no, definitely. And, and in terms of what I'm saying about observing a culture of consequences, Fran, it can only be observed at, at points in time. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not so naive to think that everything's changed now. The patriarchy has been smashed. Um, the culture in the building is, you know, irrevocably shifted. I've worked here for too long to think any of those things. So maybe it's permanent, maybe it isn't. But certainly uh, as a consequence of the last 12 months, there is, there is more of an atmosphere of consequences than has been the case in the building, certainly since I've been working there. Mm. And, and as you said, uh, look, uh, the, the anxiety of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins is that this moment will be transitory, that another scandal will come along and supplant it, another set of sort of cultural, well, issues that light up the culture will come and, and move it along. And like you know, at so many points in the history of civilization, what feels like progress is fleeting. And um, that's why I mentioned the I mentioned earlier I was talking about the Chanel Contos survey. To me, that is a great example of that. There was a big flurry of activity and some schools brought in, you know, consent um, classes, you know, more more consistent effort or more concerted effort around that. The federal government sort of kicked off a campaign which was a complete debacle around a milkshake, but let's not even go there. No, let's not you know, that seems that. to be one of those moments of focus that shifted already. I um, mean, I'm not sure. I must admit, I don't know exactly what the states and schools are doing around this, but it's certainly, I think, a federal kind of shoulder to the wheel around it and leadership around it um, could make a, a massive difference, and I don't see that. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. We need to we need to be clear in this conversation that getting better outcomes here is is not the default in societal terms. Otherwise, why would we be having this conversation? Mm. There is, there's not been a, a centre of gravity <laughs> around progress in these areas throughout the history of human civilization. So that's, that's the, that is the gravity we are attempting mm. to defy with getting these yeah. better conditions. So we obviously do need to be clear about that. Now, Catherine, the other key issue dominating parliament and, uh, you know, we're fresh from a marathon sitting in Parliament overnight, it was incredible, is the Religious Discrimination Bill and a plan also to amend the Sex Discrimination Act to make sure religious schools can't expel st uh, students for being gay. Um, it, uh, teachers. Um, that's been, you know, that's off to another report. They're not going to be protected, but students. Now, we got an all-night action on this in the Parliament last night and an important amendment with five coalition MPs crossing the floor to also include transgendered students in the protections, yep. which is a big deal. How big a deal is it, though? Well, I think the first thing to say for folks listening, as we are recording, uh, the Senate is yet to begin its deliberations, and there's a lot of talk around the building at the moment that uh, a choke point may be emerging in the Senate today. Mm -hmm. the, the government does not have 
the numbers at the moment to force an hour's motion, which would force this debate to be concluded today, as, mm -hmm. as we're talking now, I <laughs> stress. Because yeah, so things can, things things can, can move, change. but as, as we speak. Yes, yeah. As we speak, uh, we're looking at uh, this, uh, this amazing all-nighter in the lower house and now a choke point in the Senate. So uh, it's, it's unclear exactly what is going to emerge at the end of this long sitting day, what, what the good people of the Senate will choose to do. Uh, the government at the moment is saying, because we have such a limited number of parliamentary sitting days before we're all off to the election, the government now has a bunch of urgent business it has to push through. The Senate is not sitting next week. There is a Senate estimates uh, scheduled. Uh, in budget week, the government actually wanted the focus to be on the budget, uh, not all of these unresolved issues. But anyway, look, bit of a logjam happening at the moment. And there are, there are multiple scenarios. There are sort of brain-busting multiple scenarios. Yeah, there scenarios. are. My brain does hurt, actually. Yeah. 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 Rather than try and spell out all the, the scenarios, <laughs> if it comes to a choke point and chokes, if it stalls, I suppose, let's go to the politics of that because we are in, you know, the shadow. We are a whisker away from an election campaign, really. If it stalls, who wins or loses from that politically? In, I mean, it would mean a busted promise from Scott Morrison, so presumably yeah. there'd be a problem for him for not getting this moving earlier in the three-year term. But it also gives the coalition something to sort of hammer Labor with in an election campaign where the issue of religious discrimination was sensitive for Labor in some seats last time, last yeah. election. I note the PM is already trying really hard to align you know, support for this bill with support for multiculturalism. Yeah, exactly. And look, it's it's sort of difficult all round is the simple answer. Uh, in terms of what will happen if there's a choke point or if the government... Look, for, for example, today the Australian Christian lobby has, has urged the government to pull the bill. So, right. uh, so, you know, if the government stood up at lunchtime today and said we're pulling the bill, obviously they would say that's all Labor's fault because they've generated an unmanageable set of circumstances in the parliament. Obviously, the Prime Minister will weaponise that in the parts of the country that he feels that will work for the coalition. The problem the Prime Minister has now, though, is I think if we think about wedging, we think about a cheese board, if people can visualise that for a moment, and think about a big wedge of parmesan, <laughs> I think that's where the Prime Minister would have liked this to land politically, that he'd have a clean message to wedge Labor as being opposed to protecting the rights of people with religious faith, right? That was his objective. I think because of the conduct of his own people, though, either for electoral reasons or either because these people have morals and a conscience, a number of them stood up and said, we're not going to actually let trans kids be sacrificed and for and probably in a higher numbers than they expected. In higher numbers than they expected, and the thing is, in terms of weaponising this for Morrison, of, well, Anthony Albanese will say, well, yeah, that's all very cute, Scott Morrison, but actually, your own people uh, have have worked to try and kill the most obnoxious and egregious elements of this legislation. And so you I just two think are there on the ground. I mean, just on that notion of higher numbers than expected, this is just a, a sort of a, a political point. Is it is it accurate from both of you, as far as you know, that this was a surprise to the government, the five coalition MPs? We knew a couple were going to, but that this was going to happen? It's, well, it's more than I thought. Yep. Uh, you know, it's, it, Did the uh, government get a tip-off from their own MPs, though, or not? Uh, 
Uh, uh, some, not all, is my understanding. Um, I'm still shoring all of that up as we go. This is like literally yep, overnight. Absolutely, still moving, but, Fran. But uh, I don't know if all but that's five. significant, isn't it? Th- yeah, that's mm-hmm. significant. If they didn't give the, their own side the heads up. Well, it's it's it just it's sort of illustrative that uh, that the, these parliamentarians. Uh, you know, are, are acutely aware of what their own constituencies at home think about this. Where obviously, in an election context, everybody is under pressure. Uh, everybody is uh, is attempting to both, believe it or not, do the right thing and also signal to their constituencies what they're about in the value sense. So, yeah, it's like, but we get into the, there really are so many scenarios, Fran, it makes my head hurt. It really does. And of course, it, it is vexed for Labor too, just briefly. Yeah. Uh, and there are, can I say, there are there are a lot of people in the LGBTIQ community who are very angry with Labor yeah. for not going harder. Yeah, if, and absolutely. Yeah, this is this is not yeah. something that Labor's not just oh good on your Labor from yeah. the no no not no, happy no, no no not at all. Well, this no, was they, a Rebecca yeah. Sharkey amendment anyway that got voted where they cross floor wasn't wasn't a Labor amendment was no a that's for technical amendment. reasons to be fair I think right? yes yeah no, it is right. well yeah. well I also think political reasons too Patricia yeah, uh, yeah the, that that's it's a I lot thought. easier actually for government MPs to support an amendment. Amendment from Rebecca Sharkey. That's right, but not because Labor is... didn't believe in this amendment. No, no, no. no oh, no, 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 no. no. Yeah. no, no, no they they no, voted, but a... I thought it must have been a political Well, mechanism. I just think, look, I don't know, I haven't checked this explicitly with people, but my working assumption is that it is easier for Liberal MPs crossing the floor to support an, an amendment from the crossbench than it is to support a Labor amendment. Yeah, that's mm. what, exactly what happened, is, is, is from my conversations with a couple of different Liberals. Look, one of the biggest stories of the past two weeks has been the text messages scandal. Um, you know, watch out those Dear texts God. I've sent to you, Catherine. Uh, text messages <laughs> between former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian and an unnamed federal cabinet minister were released, where the unnamed minister called Scott Morrison a psycho. And then we had Barnaby Joyce's leaked texts calling the PM a hypocrite and a liar, sent during uh, the furor over Brittany Higgins's rape allegation. Catherine, with two sitting weeks until the budget, how damaging is this? I mean, it's always about motive, right, as well. Mm. What's going on here? Well, it, look, <laughs> uh, how long have we got? No, um, no, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> no, look, obviously it's damaging at, at the headline political level because, again, it's sort of uh, these communications reinforce an existing perception of the Prime Minister. Uh, the Prime Minister over the last 12 months has lost, I think, more than 20 points off his mm. approval. Uh, voters now have a much clearer sense of the of the bloke in the top job than they did at the time they elected him in 2019, to the extent that these uh, private reflections by colleagues uh, reinforce those those perceptions out there that might be soft. Uh, this is damaging for the Prime Minister. Obviously, no Prime Minister wants to be standing up saying, you know, defending whether he is or is not a psycho. I mean, let's let's just be. Let's be frank. Um, well, psycho one thing, liar another, yeah. or 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 is, are they discounting that to think that a lot of the electorate just thinks politicians lie anyway? Well, there is that, and I think the thing is there is a bit of a tendency uh, to uh, sort of have this static, for want of a better term, reinforce existing perceptions rather than shift votes. Uh, but but I think we need to 
be clear that though the, the Prime Minister has lost a lot of bark over the last 12 months, an, an awful lot of bark in terms of his public standing. So, you know, to the extent that people hear Emmanuel Macron and, uh, you know, Gladys Berejiklian and Barnaby Joyce saying, you know, this man's a liar or whatever they're saying, um, then then that is, that's not a great environment to be trying to operate in with an election so close. The the poll, the Guardian Essential Poll, so the Guardian where you work, does show the latest one though the Prime Minister recovering a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now you know, as the as as the major polls stand, Labor is in front, two party preferred. But we're not going to fall for that three card trick again, I don't think here. <laughs> <laughs> but political parties. These days, no elections are won seat by seat, micro issue by micro issue in some cases, in many cases. Um, one major issue, though, Catherine, not a micro issue at all, dogging the Morrison government is aged care. Yep. Providers have been saying for a while the sector's in crisis. We've had a, a commission or commission into it. Um, the Omicron uh, variant, the impact of that has exacerbated the crisis. Um, there's been really major problems evident, the lack of rapid antigen tests in, the, the slow booster rollout still. There's many thousands in aged care not boosted. We've had, I think it's almost 700 deaths from this latest round. These are, it's a figure we should not ignore or play down. Mm. Is this the sort of issue that the government might be able to sort of get out of the headlines, but nevertheless could be a voting issue for a lot of people in a lot of seats? Makes it harder for the government to to neutralise, really? Well, I think everybody uh, has some uh, some uh, interaction with uh, with aged care uh, through, obviously, through their family. Everybody has views about whether or not the care that's provided is, is reasonable or not. The pandemic has accelerated, as you said, Fran, existing significant weaknesses within the system, particularly, you know, the lack of a, of a workforce to be able to cope with crises in the sector, let alone other underfunding and other issues. So for people who uh, or are already concerned about aged care, then obviously the events of the last couple of years would be just devastating and heartbreaking for so many families. And with aged care, the Commonwealth funds and regulates this sector. If there's a problem in aged care, it's not Joe Bloggs' problem down the road, it's the Commonwealth's problem because they fund and regulate this sector. So, yes, look, of course, services is always an issue at an election and whether or not the provision of services is adequate or not, that's that. it's definitely an issue and, and, uh, and probably of more interest, frankly, to most people than whether or not uh, Barnaby Joyce calls mm. <laughs> Scott Morrison a liar in a text message, right? Like it's what's going on, can I keep my mum and dad alive through this pandemic mm. is a real and pressing issue for people. And if they have concluded that the Commonwealth has been deficient, then I think people will vote accordingly. Catherine? I've got to hang out with you twice today, so oh, it's, no. it's already a happy day. I haven't got a hug. <laughs> it's, well, it's a happy day for both of us, stuff. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. No worries. I'll Thanks text you later, me. but just keep it tight. See <laughs> you, Catherine. See you, bye. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Michael, who writes, how likely is it that the coalition can pull another miracle election at the upcoming election in the next few months? Or is it likely that voters will see a lack of leadership and that will in turn uh, fall back on the state's shoulders? Fran? 
Well, I think the answer, Michael, is I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we can't sort of trust the polls <laughs> at the moment um, after what happened last time to, sh- to tell us, you know, how likely another miracle election win is for Scott Morrison. But right now he's trailing in the polls. I think one thing we can, you mentioned the states, I think one thing we can say at this point, I think, is that all through the pandemic for the last couple of years, we've seen a number of state elections and where incumbency and the management of the pandemic has helped the incumbents. So governments have been returned strongly as the electorate has sort of voted with their feet behind their state government for keeping them safe. I'm not sure that the federal government will be able to count on that. In fact, I think it's pretty clear the federal election will in large part be a referendum on the Morrison government's handling of this pandemic. And I don't know that they're going to get the same sort of incumbency boost in In fact, I'm pretty sure they won't, that the state governments have got. There's a lot of issues uh, very front of mind for people that have happened over the summer, particularly that sort of lack of rapid antigen tests, for one thing, and a number of others we've spoken about today in the party room, um, that mean that the federal government will not be counting on that same boost that state governments got over the last 20, 20, 24 months. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, just anyone who tells you, you know, the coalition is, is, you know, heading for for a defeat... There is time till May. Things, I just would not say that. Um, yes, they've had a messy summer and, and an entry point to the parliamentary year, but they're banking on switching and flicking the switch to national security and the economy. If they can successfully do that, there is still a pathway to victory for them. And that's what Scott Morrison hopes to do. But he's, you know, he can't have any more of these missteps you've seen so far. So just watch what happens in the next couple of months. And keep listening to the party room because that's what we're going to be keeping you up to date with. Now, send your questions in because we love getting your questions. You can tweet us using the hashtag the party room or email your questions to the party room at abc.net.au. And remember, you can follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. That's it for The Party Room this week. Lovely to be hanging out with you again and to be in everyone's feeds again, Fran. Yeah, what a week it's been and what a year it's going to be. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.